We the People wants to hear from you on how we're doing with this podcast. Please visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash survey and complete our five-minute survey. It really helps us refine the podcast and give you the educational material about the Constitution that you want. Please be sure to fill out the survey and rate our podcast on iTunes and other platforms. The feedback ensures we can keep growing and improving this crucially important space for constitutional debate. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis in order to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Uh, it's now President's Day. Uh, happy President's Day, everybody. And soon the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in Janus versus American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, a case that asks whether mandatory union fees even for non-union members, violate the First Amendment. The outcome of the case could have tremendous implications for First Amendment jurisprudence and affect many public sector workers across the country. Joining us to discuss this crucial case are two of America's leading scholars on the First Amendment and labor law. Both have filed influential amicus briefs in the Janus case, and we're incredibly honored to have them both. Eugene Volek is Gary T. Schwartz, Distinguished Professor of Law at the UCLA Law School. He co-wrote an amicus brief in Janus with Will Baud, siding with the union. And Alicia Hickok is a partner at the law firm Drinker Biddle and a lecturer in law at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. She wrote an amicus brief in the Janus case on behalf of the Rutherford Institute, siding with Janus. Eugene, Alicia, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Eugene, you have uh, surprised uh, and delighted some and uh, discomfited others by uh, filing an amicus brief uh, siding with the unions in this case, despite your distinguished uh, libertarian free speech uh, credentials. Uh, tell us first, very briefly, what, what, the, what the facts are in this Janus case, so the listeners have a sense of them, and then tell us why you and Will Baud believe there is not, in this case, a First Amendment violation. Sure. So Illinois, like uh, some states, but not like others, uh, provides that uh, public employee unions can require all public employees uh, that they represent, even ones who aren't union members, uh, to um, pay dues to the union that are then used for uh, collective bargaining purposes. Uh, and the question is whether that violates the First Amendment rights of objecting uh, employees on the grounds that it's a form of compelled speech or compelled association. Back 40 years ago uh, in the Abood case, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court unanimously said that uh, uh, that kind of um, uh, deduction is, uh, or that kind of required fee uh, is unconstitutional uh, if the money is used for political purposes. And to the extent that money is used for political purposes, unions have to refund any uh, uh, proportionate share of the fees to objecting employees. But to the extent it's just used for collecting bargaining purposes, the court said that, that does implicate the First Amendment. It does burden the rights of objecting employees, uh, but is nonetheless constitutional because it's important to uh, maintaining labor peace and to preserving the role of unions in labor management relations. Um, and Will's in my position is that Abood, uh, though unanimous, was mistaken. 
um, that in fact, uh, uh, we believe that there is no First Amendment issue even in requiring people to pay money that ends up being used for even political expression they disagree with, possibly setting aside the special case of an overtly partisan uh, vote Republican, vote Democrat. And our main argument is this is precisely what the government uh, does with regard to tax money all the time. So you and I have to pay our taxes. It's not even like with the with public employees where you have to pay the agency fees or you lose your job. Here we have to pay our taxes or we lose our liberty. We get thrown in prison. Uh, so we have to pay our taxes, and some fraction of the taxes is used for speech we dislike. A lot of it is used for public schools, and public schools may teach things we, we disapprove of. Um, some of it is going to be used for advocacy having to do with uh, urging people to join the military. Some people may disapprove of that. Uh, advocacy environmental issues and issues having to do with race, sex. Uh, we have we still have to pay our taxes and we don't have any right uh, to get some of that money back on the theory that uh, it's being used for ideas we disapprove of because um, uh, the requirement that we pay our taxes is not viewed as burdening our First Amendment rights. Uh, having to pay money is not the same as being barred from speaking, being barred from using your money to speak or being required to speak. It is only being required to pay money. And we think that ultimately it, the uh, union fee situation is not materially different. In fact, if you get a paycheck, you will generally have all of these uh, um, taxes already deducted from your paycheck withheld. Um, and in some, uh, in, in some uh, public workplaces, you might also have uh, your union dues withheld. Uh, from the paycheck. We think ultimately there's no material difference between the two for First Amendment purposes. Thank you so much for that uh, incredibly helpful summary. And listeners, it's important to emphasize the uh, significance of Eugene's uh, brief and an article from The Intercept called The Eminent Libertarians Who Might Save Public Sector Unions calls the brief a surprising lifeline from an unlikely friend. Now, Alyssa, you also have filed a very important amicus brief in the case. Tell us uh, why you think that there is a First Amendment violation here and what your response is to Eugene's position. Well, I think my response is multifold. Um, first of all, looking at the Illinois statute itself, the Illinois statute made this bargaining unit the exclusive representative of all employees. So the only voice at the table is that of the union. There, it, it's not the case that you have, you know, separate petition rights or anything else that you would in in the typical political setting. And the monies are not limited to just what is used for collective bargaining. In fact, the statute says that the monies that can be assessed and it can be up to the cost of dues would be both the share of collective bargaining process costs, contract administration costs, and the costs for pursuing matters that affect wages, hours, and conditions of employment. Obviously, wages, hours, and conditions of employment implicate very important policy determinations, and therefore, they're political decisions. They are not just decisions that are how am I negotiating terms of a contract, but they are actually implicating public policy. And the only way that you can get out of this is one very narrow provision 
that says that if you are religiously opposed, then you can take and elect to have an agreed-upon non-religious charity receive the amount of money that you would have paid to the union except for your religious beliefs. And as such, you have no choice if you're an Illinois public employee, full-time public employee, except to say, whatever the union says is what I am supporting financially and um, in other ways, even if it is not what you agree with and not what you're supporting. And that's the core of the First Amendment. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Eugene, your response, why is the political speech, as Alicia called it, uh, that's uh, being subsidized here, not of the kind that the First Amendment calls about, calls on? And then tell us, how, how were the conservative justices likely to analyze the case before your uh, important brief was filed? And w- w- what's your response to that um, uh, argument that uh, seemed to be getting traction from five justices before the untimely death of Justice Antonin Scalia. So uh, uh, there's no doubt that the union uh, expresses its views on a wide range of subjects, some of which are overtly political in the sense that they may lobby for some statutes. But I actually agree that collective bargaining, especially in the public sector, is inherently political. Uh, The question is whether the First Amendment blocks the government from requiring people to pay some money that ends up being used for those purposes. I'm a big believer of broad protection for speech, as the First Amendment provides, and even for symbolic expression of various sorts. I just don't think that this is something that's covered by the First Amendment. Uh, Nobody is saying that these members, or excuse me, non-members, the employees, cannot speak. They're free to speak. They're free to join other groups. To be sure, the government may be exclusively negotiating with one particular union, but that's something the government is entitled to choose to do. Uh, They're not being required to join the union. They are being required to pay money. But again, we don't think that this is a First Amendment problem. Let's let me uh, highlight this with a specific example having to do with this very union negotiation we have in mind here. So union comes to the table with the with management and union is negotiating with these fees that are taken compulsorily from the employees. But the management has to negotiate with something too, right? I mean, I have to pay the negotiators. What are they using for it? Well, they're using government funds. What are government funds? They're taxpayer funds. Uh, uh, The uh, uh, people sitting on the management side are being funded by compulsory levied uh, money as well. It's just we don't call it agency fees or dues. We call it taxes. So, in fact, it may be that uh, that um, not it may be. It is certainly the case that some of that uh, some of those taxes actually come indirectly from the very same employees we have in mind. If if an employee says, I am a, I'm really opposed to management and I refuse to allow any of my tax money to be used on the management side of labor negotiations, I think we'd say, well, that's not a First Amendment objection. That may be a good policy objection if you can persuade enough fellow voters. But as a First Amendment matter, there's no problem with the government taking your money and then using it to speak in the context of these union negotiations. I don't see why there would be, as a First Amendment matter, a problem with the government taking um, uh, employees' money, not not compulsorily through taxes, but through these agency fees, uh, and then giving it in the form of uh, 
uh, of uh, a, a paycheck deduction, direct deduction, which is the way it's often done this way, uh, to the union, which then uses it on the other side of the negotiation. The two seem to me to be the same for First Amendment purposes. Now you ask, uh, 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 how? Uh, what about the view that the conservative justices have in the past generally expressed, just as Gorsuch had not had a chance to express it? My guess, by the way, it's the view that five conservative justices would take as well. I believe that the arguments we give in our brief are right, but uh, we have no illusions about our silver-tongued persuasive powers. Uh, the four, four of the five conservative justices have thought about this issue for a long time. They have reached a result we disagree with, but that's they're the ones with the robes. Chances are that Justice Gorsuch will take the same view. So I don't want to claim that this is the way the court will decide. But their position is that it's impermissible for the government to take money from, from people and give it to or rather have it be directly sent to, as I said, often this is through paycheck deductions, although sometimes it could even require employees to write a check to uh, a private entity. But it's different when the money has to go to the, go to the uh, government by way of taxes. We just don't see why that is a sensible distinction. The other argument, of course, is uh, that the conservatives, uh, uh, at least as a part of their position, have precedent on their side. For the last 40 years, the Supreme Court has been saying, yes, there really is a serious First Amendment problem. Well, Bode and I disagree, but uh, that, that wasn't the view of the court. Now, to be sure, the conservative justices are trying to... Uh, uh, to change that precedent, overrule it in part. The precedent says, but there's a compelling interest justifying uh, taking money for collective bargaining purposes, though not for political lobbying purposes. So they're not going to go along entirely with the precedent, but they have precedent in part on their side. We don't. We just think that our position is more logical and more consistent with the rest of, uh, um, uh, of Supreme Court precedent. Thanks so much for that. Um, Alicia, uh, should the court overrule the Abood case, which says that there is a compelling interest in promoting uh, collective bargaining? Uh, or, uh, as Janice argues, should Abood be overruled because it's proved to be unworkable because of the difficulties that arise in determining which expenses are attributed to collective bargaining and which are not? Well, Actually, what Rutherford has advocated is something a little bit in between, which is to say that the right of association and the right of speech is important enough that there should be an opt-in option. And in the states, and there are many of them, I think there's 22 of them that do not have mandatory agency fees, but actually have the unions still have a right of representation, but have it be that people will opt into supporting the unions. The, you know, predictions that you'll have the demise of collective bargaining, et cetera, have, have not come to pass at all. They've been still very much a, an accountable entity that then really speaks on behalf of its membership and has to listen to the membership instead of simply having the patronization of the, the government saying, this is the only person I'm going to talk to, and you're going to pay for whatever that entity decides to say. And I think that is the most constitutionally protective of a First Amendment right, because a person needs to be able to say there's there's a long history of uh, Supreme Court case law that says that the right to speak is also a right to be silent. 
And the right to be ambivalent, the right to be ambiguous, those are protected rights as well. And it's only if you can decide whether you want to participate in that speech that you can protect those rights fully. Thanks so much for that. Eugene, you believe that Abood was wrongly decided, even though you think that uh, Janice should lose. Do you think Abood should be overturned? And do you think the court will overturn Abood? Uh, I'm glad you asked this as two separate uh, questions. Yes, I think that Abood is both wrong enough and has produced enough uncertainty and uh, uh, contentious litigation uh, that uh, uh, it's probably the kind of precedent that should be overturned. There's always a good argument for saying, look, you know, even if something is mistaken, let's just stick with it uh, rather than constantly re-examining everything. Uh, and uh, maybe a plausible argument here. Nonetheless, it has led to this uh, um, uh, uh, follow-up lawsuits about uh, uh, where the line is between what is allowed, the collective bargaining, what is not allowed, the, ideal, the ideological advocacy, whether it applies the same way to state bars, yes, with, whether it applies the same way to universities, no, uh, that we think that it probably ought to be overruled. Will it be overruled, the direction that we recommend? I doubt it. Again, it's probably the, the odds on bet is still five for the conservatives more or less overruling it in the other direction and saying, look, we agree with Abood that, that this burdens people's First Amendment rights, but we disagree that that is a permissible burden as to collective bargaining. It's possible that they may, that some uh, uh, of the justices, uh, uh, the conservative justices and the liberal justices might say, look, let's just stick with the Abood compromise. Uh, uh, I doubt that you'll have a majority of justices for the position that we urge. Again, I just don't want to overclaim uh, uh, the likelihood here. Um, uh, but uh, uh, but we do think that it probably should be overruled. Uh, thanks for that. Alicia, of course, the decision about uh, overruling Abood will have implications on the future of public sector unions. Could the court accept your position that uh, you, people have to opt in without overruling Abood? And, and what might a kind of moderate compromise look like that you could imagine, for example, Chief Justice Roberts uh, uh, overseeing, um, which might lead uh, Janice to win uh, with, without overruling Abood? I think that you you certainly could, because you would be upholding the values of collective bargaining, of the importance of the right to even an exclusive representative, all of the things that are are parts of what Abood said. What you would be saying, though, is that the funding piece of it, the the ability to determine that the fair share is only this amount of money, but it encompasses, you know, all of, all of the grounds where the fighting is, that instead people would, would have the right to say, yes, I will pay for this political speech or no, I will not. And so to that extent, Abood would be overruled, but a lot of the underlying principles that that animated the compromise to begin with would still remain in place. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, Eugene, um, you're not uh, the only distinguished scholar who's weighed in on this case. Uh, Charles Freed and Robert Post, uh, uh, very distinguished conservative and uh, progressive legal scholars from Harvard and Yale, 
have argued that Justice Alito's position, namely that requiring dues from non-union members is always a First Amendment violation, is inconsistent with the First Amendment analysis of employee speech that Justice Kennedy set out in a decision called Garcetti. Tell us about the Garcetti case, which involved public employees and their First Amendment rights, and Kennedy's view there that it depends on whether they're speaking as employees or as citizens. Sure. So uh, Garcetti involved a question that indubitably was a matter of freedom of speech. It involved the question of when the government can fire employees for speaking. So it didn't have to do with these questions about when somebody could be required to pay money and whether that even is speech compulsion or not. It had to do with the question of whether people can be fired for speaking. And the court has come up with a complicated uh, um, uh, set of rules that require some case-by-case balancing, for example, of the value of the speech against the disruption the speech causes, question, uh, require inquiry into whether the speech is on a matter of public concern or merely private concern and what exactly that means and how you draw that line. And in Garcetti, uh, the court, by a 5-4 vote, added an extra element, which is that it has to be speech Uh, to be protected against government retaliation has to be speech that's outside of one's job duties. And when this is speech that is within one's job duties, for for example, something that one is required to to write or or say, so for example, if a government lawyer, uh, uh, the speech is a memo that he wrote or a brief that he wrote, the government can fire or otherwise discipline the person based on that speech that's part of his duties. And... um, The rationale for that is complicated. To me, the strongest argument for that position, whether you think it's the right position or not, is you need to be able to evaluate your employee's work. And if their job is to speak, you have to be able to say, oh, you know, this person just doesn't do a very good job of this. If the person's job is to speak to his coworkers as a, or his subordinates as a manager and he says things that, uh, uh, that uh, are dis- potentially disruptive, we should just be entitled to say, look, we are not getting from you what we paid for uh, 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 because we're, you we're requiring you to speak and the things you're saying we think are bad things. Or perhaps they reflect reflect lack of perspective or reflect errors in perception or whatever else. So that's an interesting question. It's not clear to me that the majority got it right in that case, but it seems to be pretty far removed from uh, from this issue. Um, uh, that it's true that the people are being required to uh, uh, pay dues to the union as a condition of employment. But that can't be quite enough. Imagine that uh, uh, the rule was as a condition of employment, you have to all employees in all places have to not just pay money to the union, but they have to sign a pledge that says, yes, I'm a big believer in unionism. That too would be a condition of employment, but I take it that would be an impermissible speech compulsion. Maybe it might be permissible for somebody who wants to work in the National Labor Relations Board because it's so closely connected to his duties, uh, but it, but maybe not even then and certainly not uh, in uh, uh, normal situations. So that's why I think the Garcetti analogy isn't helpful. I ultimately come to the same conclusion, uh, but on different grounds. I just think that this there is no speech restriction here. There is no real speech compulsion here. All that is compelled is the payment of money. By the way, I'm not a big supporter of unionism. I'm uh, uncertain about whether unions do more harm than good or more good than harm 
on balance, especially in the country today. I'm in particular uncertain about whether public employee unions are a good idea. And even as I understand it, some liberal politicians in the past who have supported unionism generally have opposed it for public employee unions and the theory that that should be left to the political process, public employment conditions, rather than through the uh, process of uh, collective bargaining. Um, uh, and I, I totally see the arguments that it's unfair to require someone to pay a portion of his paycheck to a, a, a support collective bargaining that he may very much disapprove of. I just don't think that's a First Amendment problem. I think that's a policy argument. Shouldn't be a First Amendment dispute. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, well, you mentioned that you're you're not uh, a, a supporter of public sector unions, and this case may have large implications for them. Alicia, if the court uh, overturns Abood and rules for Janus, what might the outcome of that case be on the future of public sector unions? Well, I think that goes back to the discussion that we were having earlier about the fact that there are a number of states that have public employee unions that don't assess an agency fee, and yet the unions are still very vibrant. I think the effect that it does have is that it makes the unions more accountable to their membership because they don't have an automatic membership. They don't, or not just membership, but, but here where, for example, in Illinois, where you can assess up to the amount of dues for a non-member, it almost makes no difference whether somebody is a member or not in terms of what you as a union can do and decide and spend. And so if instead you need to be certain that you are listening to all of the people who are going to support you and that you are echoing their voices, I think that's an accountability that you want to have on the other side of a bargaining table. Thanks for that. Eugene, your estimation about what might happen to public sector unions if a boot is overturned? You know, it's a great question. I don't know the answer to it. Uh, I think people can speculate about the answer. Uh, I think probably somebody could by researching closely how things work in situations where there are no such agency fees in those states that forbid them. Uh, uh, I think one could probably get a better idea of it. I just haven't done that research, partly because my argument does doesn't turn on the practical consequences. It turns on the question of what is it that we think the First Amendment covers? And with the First Amendment, uh, uh, there's a First Amendment right to object, not to speaking, but object to paying. And we don't think that there is. And that's true regardless of the consequences. Alicia, can you give us a sense of the history of uh, the First Amendment's treatment of public sector unions, broadly, uh, both corporations and unions were regulated during the progressive era in laws like the Tillman Act and modern First Amendment jurisprudence is a relatively uh, recent uh, phenomena from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and so forth. So, so how unusual would it be to apply a strong First Amendment analysis to public sector unions in this case? Boy, I <laughs> um. Well, I haven't done a lot of the historical research into that, so it may be that Professor Bullock is a better one to speak to the history of it. Th that's fine. F forgive me for putting you on the spot, and it was a tough question that I asked because I don't know the answer either. So, Eugene, do you, do you know the answer? Sure. So it seems to me there are two separate issues going on here. 
One is what is the scope of union free speech rights? Uh, and it's true that up until around the 1930s, the Supreme Court was willing to impose a lot of restrictions on unions, for example, organizing boycotts and various other such things. Shouldn't just say the Supreme Court, lots of courts, and it came up occasionally to the Supreme Court. Um, uh, likewise, the Tillman Act, as I understand it, banned uh, uh, contributions uh, to political campaigns by corporations and by unions. That still remains the law. There are also attempts to restrict independent spending by corporations and unions. That's what the Citizens United case was in large measure about. And the Supreme Court said, no, unions and corporations have the right to spend money in political campaigns, um, uh, uh, even if they don't necessarily have the right to contribute money directly to the candidates. Uh, so those are important questions. And I should say, outside of the context of uh, speech uh, urging the uh, election or defeat of a candidate or, or the passing or rejecting of a ballot measure, since the late 1930s and certainly since the 1940s, the Supreme Court has almost uniformly said unions and corporations do have free speech rights. Uh, it's just the the real debate on the court has been about whether those rights can be limited in the special case of speech about election campaigns. Uh, but here we're dealing with a separate question, which isn't the union's right to speak, there's no doubt about the union's right to speak, or about the dissenting employee's right to speak. The dissenting employee certainly has the right to speak. Rather, the question is whether the dissenting employee has a First Amendment right to refuse to allow his money to be used by a union. And I don't think so. And actually, if you want to bring up corporations as an analogy, sometimes you might be required to buy things from a corporation. So, for example, as a condition of driving on California roads, I have to buy a car insurance policy. Now, there are a bunch of different insurance companies out there, but you can imagine a situation where the state regulates them so heavily that there are only a very few or maybe even only one or maybe a couple. Um, uh, I don't think I have a First Amendment right then to say, but I insist that the uh, insurance company refund that portion of the money that it uses for speech, for whether it's advertising or lobbying or negotiating rates with the state. Because the answer is, you know, I'm, I'm the fact that I'm required to buy this insurance policy uh, doesn't mean that I am being forced to speak or forced to associate in the constitutionally significant way. I'm just being forced to pay money. And again, we think that's the same way, uh, the same thing should apply to unions as applies to corporations. Many thanks for that. Uh, well, Alicia, your, your, your response to that, and Eugene helpfully teaches both of us that there had been a symmetrical treatment of unions and corporations early on in the progressive era. Now we have Citizens United with strong protection for the speech of corporations. Would it be asymmetrical to create this strong right of individuals to opt out uh, for the reasons that uh, Eugene suggests? And, and, and would it seem like an unfair uh, treatment of unions vis-a-vis -vis corporations when it comes to the First Amendment? Well, I see the insurance analogy in a very different way. Because if you look at how insurance is treated, there are certainly regulators that are involved that will say, here's a floor, here's the way that consumers need to be protected. Here are the things, you know, the financial responsibility that we require of an insurance company. But aside from that, there is a, a protection of competition so that there is an individual ability to choose 
how it is that I am going to satisfy any legal requirement that I be an insured driver in order to use the roads. And I could opt only to use public transportation and not to buy insurance because I'm not going to buy a car. So that kind of a condition is very different than saying that if I am going to work in the government in any capacity, that I need to have one private organization be my voice on public policy issues that impact my employment and that set the terms of my employment. I don't see them as analogous in any way. Uh, thanks uh, for that. Uh, Eugene, might, might that history bolster your argument? Because I can imagine a tremendous outcry if the court is viewed as putting a a stake through the heart of unions after having provided strong First Amendment protection for corporations? Well, first, let me just make clear, Citizens United may have been specifically about the speech of corporations, but exactly the same holding applies to unions. And it was quite clear, I think, both to the justices and to the litigants in this case, that it was a case about where corporate and union rights uh, um, uh, stood or fell together, and in that case, they stood together, uh, that uh, uh, after Citizens United, unions are indubitably free to speak out about candidates just as much as corporations are free. Uh, so, uh, so I don't think Citizens United creates any kind of asymmetric treatment here. All I'm saying is that when it comes to the question of whether there's a First Amendment right to refuse to pay money to some entity, I think the answer is no, whether that entity is a corporation or a union. A separate question from the one in Citizens United, except insofar as Citizens United uh, took the view that the two should be treated equally, which it did, and I think the same should be so here. Um, so it, it um, uh, when you uh, are required to buy insurance, uh, sometimes there might be a lot of competition. Sometimes there might not be. There's no constitutional entitlement to make sure that there are at least five or 10 or even at least two insurance companies selling auto insurance. I think it's a great idea. And there could be lots of good policy arguments for likewise having competition among unions so you don't have an exclusive uh, representative. That's just, but that's a policy question. So let's set that aside. Uh, if a state wants to say there's only one or two or three insurance companies, uh, it's entitled to do that. And then you have to buy the insurance and then the insurance uh, uh, company might spend that money for reasons uh, for a speech you disapprove of, and you don't have a First Amendment objection. Now, the response is, well, you don't have to buy insurance because you could uh, uh, take public transportation. Yes, in some situations, you could do that uh, if there's enough good public transportation to get you to work. Uh, uh, but in many situations, it's not practically feasible, just like you could avoid all this public union stuff by quitting your job and taking another job in the private sector. That, too, may not be economically feasible. Let's just stipulate. I'm happy to stipulate that there's some degree of coercion involved when it comes to uh, public employees being required to pay such fees. But then you have to, I think, stipulate there's some degree of coercion involved when it comes to requiring drivers to buy insurance, because really, for many drivers, the option of taking public transportation is not really a serious issue. Uh, all I'm saying is that that kind of coercion to pay is not the same as coercion of speech. It doesn't implicate the First Amendment any more for the insurance company than it does for, uh, for the union. And again, one other thing, imagine that you do take public transportation. You have to pay for public transportation. The city gets that money. 
and then the city starts using it to express all sorts of views you, you disapprove of. There's only one city in where you live. You don't get to compete unless you're willing to move. Uh, you don't get to, to have them compete. Uh, um, and yet, nonetheless, again, you don't have a First Amendment right uh, uh, to say to the city, you must stop using uh, my uh, 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 my fares for speech that I disapprove of. I think the same thing should be true with regard to public sector unions. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, Alicia, let's talk about the slippery slope, because this is the We the People podcast, and it's the time for a slippery slope argument. If the court <laughs> embraces your view that uh, there's a difference between providing a person an opportunity to opt out in support for political and ideological speech, um, what future lawsuits might we have? Could people argue that they shouldn't have to buy insurance from a set number of companies because they don't like the uses to which those funds are put? And you know, could the entire tax system be called into question? Well, I don't think so. And I think I think there's a couple of, of different principles that are animating that. One is that part of the understanding that we have as citizenry is that if the decisions that are being made within our city are decisions that we are unhappy with, we go to the ballot box. That is where our political power is. And so if, if the way that, that a political system is being run makes us unhappy, we change it. If the you know, legislatures making decisions we don't like, we get new legislators. We, we advocate for laws. That's how we impact the public system. In a union, if you are a non-member and you are having to pay and the money that you are using is supporting a position that you do not support, you have no voice in it. You have nothing that you can do in order to effectuate a change that will ensure that your policy is being advocated for. And so in that way, there is none of the accountability that is built into our electoral system in what is going on here. So if if I'm unhappy about a tax, which, you know, famously in our city, we've had people unhappy with the soda tax, they took it to the courts, they're taking it to, you know, <laughs> the ballot box. These are things that that we can do because these taxes make people unhappy. If there were the same accountability, then maybe you could make an analogy between the two, but there isn't the same accountability there. With the insurance example, I, I'm really troubled by the idea that you could have a governmental monopoly that says only one insurance company is going to be satisfactory to me and you must buy your insurance there and you must pay whatever price they set because that is how I'm going to use my political power in order to further a private company. I, I would think that that would violate the Sherman Act, if nothing else. And I I just don't see that slippery slope as being something that would come from a decision here. 
Thanks for that. Eugene, uh, take it away on the slippery slope. Well, I think there are three separate things going on here. One is uh, unions, as I understand labor law, uh, represent employees as a result of an election at which the employees choose to unionize and then cho and choose a particular union to represent them. So if the remedy for uh, cities using uh, your tax money for speech you disapprove or the federal government doing the same is vote the bums out, there's a similar remedy in the union context. It's not perfect remedy in the union context because maybe a lot of your colleagues uh, uh, will vote to keep the bums in. And in that case, you lose. And the union could then, under our model, still use your dues for speech you disapprove of. Uh, but uh, the same thing, of course, can be true of the city, right? Uh, you might try to vote, uh, vote the current people out and your fellow citizens disagree, and then you're stuck with them. And does that mean that you have a, then a First Amendment right to object to or to demand that the city stop using your taxes for speech you disapprove of? No, it doesn't. Uh, now, to be sure, uh, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the second point uh, is that the fact that there's political accountability strikes me as irrelevant to the First Amendment issue. It's very relevant to the policy issue, but it's not relevant to the First Amendment issue. Now, what I'm hearing here is actually an echo of what the Abood majority did say. It distinguished taxes on the grounds that the reason, for, and I'm quoting here, the reason for permitting the government to compel the payment of taxes and to spend money on controversial projects is the government is representative of the people. The same cannot be said of a union which is representative only of one segment of the population with certain common interests, close quote. But I don't see why that should affect the First Amendment point. If, if there is a First Amendment right, then the fact that restriction is popular, is enacted by the government, and could be overturned with sufficient popular opposition does nothing, generally speaking, to uh, uh, to um, uh, justify restrictions on real First Amendment rights. If the government is saying, oh, you can't express these views, uh, it can't defend itself by saying, well, and if you don't like this restriction, you can always go to the ballot box and, uh, uh, and uh, elect people who repeal it. That's not no defense at all when real First Amendment issues uh, uh, arise. So the very fact that we're saying, well, the government, it's okay if the government uses the money because it's uh, uh, politically accountable, that suggests that there's really just no real First Amendment problem with the use of such money by people who are politically accountable or not. The third point has to do with whether monopolies are a good idea. They generally aren't. Whether they violate the Sherman Antitrust Act, uh, I think they might if they're municipal in some situations. I'm not an antitrust scholar, but I do know that uh, uh, state law can often authorize monopoly schemes that would otherwise be, uh, be unconstitutional. Um, I do know that there are, of course, monopolies often for public utilities, which really are set by the government as monopolies. I think they all may be bad ideas as economic matter, as a fairness matter, as a general liberty principle matter, but they don't violate the First Amendment. Likewise, this agency fee system may be bad for all sorts of reasons, some of which we've heard. Uh, doesn't mean it's unconstitutional under the First Amendment. Wonderful. Alicia, one last question, and then it's time for closing arguments. Uh, there, there's a case on the horizon called Yon versus CTA, Y-O-H-N, uh, waiting in the wings. Uh, both cases challenge mandatory union fees, but the Yon case also questions whether teachers have to opt out of paying the political portion of the dues and wants to change that to an opt-in. 
So even if the court settles the fee issue in the Janus case, your argument about the opt-in, opt-out question might still be raised in Yon. Tell us about the Yon case and other cases that might be on the horizon. (laughs) Well, once again, (laughs) you're going to catch me with something that, um, you know, I can tell you that the opt-in is a very important principle that, and, and, you know, it's interesting when we've been talking about this as speech and only speech, because the first amendment protects not just speech, but association. And you talked about it at the very beginning. And what is happening here is very clearly a statement that here are dollars that are being taken from an individual's paycheck that are going to determine that individual's rights and benefits. And they're going to an organization that is supposed to be advocating on behalf of that individual. And when the speech that they are that they are using, that they are making, the positions that they are taking is not reflective of what that individual believes or would say, there is nothing more contrary to the First Amendment than that. And the the reason for the opt-in, the reason why the opt-in question in Yon is going to become so important is because a person has to be able not just to associate or identify with or agree with the speech that they are going to be held to have made. But if they don't even want to make a choice whether to say that or they haven't made up their mind whether they want to take that position or they are of two minds as to that position, they should not be considered to have made that statement. They should be allowed to form their opinions and to express their opinions. And if their opinion is, yes, I agree with what the union is doing and advocating, and I want to be a part of it, and I want to support it, that is a First Amendment value. But it is only protected if it's done by allowing them to make that choice and to opt in. Thanks so much for that. Well, it's time for closing arguments in this extremely illuminating discussion. These are the brief three-minute statements where you sum up the essence of your position, and I hope we, the people listeners, you're finding these closing arguments uh, useful. And the first one, Eugene, is to you. Why do you believe that the speech at issue in the Janus case does not implicate First Amendment concerns? So I don't think there is speech as such at issue in the Janus case. Uh, The real question in the Janus case is, can the government require people as condition of employment to pay a portion of their money or alternatively have a portion of their salary withheld from the paycheck and then be given to unions uh, for uh, uh, purposes of collective bargaining or possibly ideological advocacy? Well, the government already requires employees, uh, public employees and private employees as a condition of employment, public or private, to have um, a portion of their funds uh, withheld from their paycheck to be taken as taxes. And then the government can use those taxes to express all sorts of things that that the taxpayers may disapprove of, including to engage in collective bargaining on the other side of the table. 
Uh, and yet, I think it's broadly agreed that that's not a First Amendment problem. The government isn't restricting employees' speech. It isn't compelling employees uh, uh, to speak. Uh, it isn't compelling expressive association, the form of association the First Amendment protects. It's just compelling the payment of money. And the payment of money is not generally speaking, compelled payment of money is not generally speaking thought of as violating the compelled speech doctrine. Our position is that, that is to say, my uh, co-author Will Bodes in my position is that um, uh, when the government requires people to pay money, whether it's to the government and taxes or to unions uh, in agency fees or to corporations when there's, for example, compelled uh, auto insurance or whatever else, uh, uh, then uh, uh, that is just not a First Amendment problem. Is this a restriction on liberty? Absolutely. Could you fault it as an improper restriction in employees' liberty? I think that's a very plausible argument and a good argument to be made at the ballot box. In fact, uh, in a lot of states, that argument has prevailed and these kinds of agency fees have been forbidden. Uh, is, is it good policy to have such agency fees? Uh, is it a f good for economic efficiency or for la labor management relations? Interesting question. You can have plausible arguments on both sides. But like most arguments about policy and fairness and liberty, uh, these arguments should be uh, dealt with in, under the American system through the legislative process, through the political process. The judicial process has to do with arguments about specific constitutional rights. Does it violate the right to keep and bear arms? Does it involve an unreasonable search and seizure? In this instance, does it violate the freedom of speech? And we don't think that requiring people to pay money, whether to the government, to unions or to corporations, uh, it violates the freedom of speech or even implicates the freedom of speech, even if some of that money would be used for speech. Thank you so much for that. Alicia, last word to you. Why do you think there is speech at issue in the Janus case and that restricting it violates the First Amendment? When a person sits down to negotiate a contract for public employees. They are negotiating with a person who is paid by funds and who comes cloaked with the authority of all of the public employees. And if they are not representing the public employees because they are not speaking with, a pub with those public employees' voices, and there is no one else at the table who can be heard and no other position, then you have compelled those public employees to speak in a way that they do not agree with. And that implicates the First Amendment. Thank you so much, Alicia Hickok and Eugene Volek, for an illuminating, substantive, surprising, and educational discussion of the Janus case and the First Amendment. Eugene, Alicia, thank you so much for joining. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you very much. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Ugana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Ugana Etze. The National Constitution Center is offering continuing legal education credits for Select America's town hall programs. Credit is available both for in-person events and on-demand courses. Visit constitutioncenter.org CLE for a thrilling and diverting way of fulfilling this onerous requirement. The National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people around the country 
who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate, so crucial as James Madison recognized, so that we the people can educate ourselves and be fully engaged citizens in American democracy. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.